Let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 18, verse 12. That's where we'll pick up today in our series, The Road to Resurrection. It's good to see all of you here today. Good to worship with you. Uh, just echo what Paul said earlier about preparing our hearts for uh, Good Friday and Easter coming up soon. And I think John 18 is going to help us do that today as we look at another chapter in the life of Jesus and the life of Peter as well. And, you know, as you're turning that passage, let me just start our message this morning uh, by sharing a little debate with you, if I could do that. Uh, I was with some friends recently, and we were kind of debating, you know, which, which of the Star Wars movies was the best? And I'll be honest, our, our conversation was pretty passionate. I mean, people get pretty amped up about this. So I'll, I'll share my opinion with you. Don't hate me for this, okay? But my favorite Star Wars movie is The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I got Ryan's approval. That, is, that means a lot. Thank you, Ryan. And I, I don't know why. I, don't, I didn't like some of the new movies when they came out. I don't like the recent movies as much as I liked that movie. And some of that might have to do with my childhood and it being the movie that I grew up with. And, you know, it was on VHS all the time when I was a kid. Do you all remember VHS? Never mind. Well, anyways, you know, the reason I like that movie so much, it's not just because it was, you know, good storytelling and an interesting plot, but... You know, it, it's great storytelling in the movie because there's this back and forth between the main characters. You know, for instance, Han Solo and Leia—they're trying to lay other, they're trying to stay alive and run from the Star Destroyer. So that's one narrative that's going. And and at the same time, there's Luke Skywalker, and he's getting Jedi training from Yoda. And this this kind of a back and forth action throughout the movie until eventually uh, they converge at the end of the movie. It's, it's great storytelling. It really is. But I want you to know that, you know, good storytelling like that, it didn't begin with George Lucas. Storytelling like that is an ancient art. And storytelling, by the way, too, isn't limited to stories. The nature of history and history writing is often told with similar techniques and skills. Uh, and there, even before George Lucas incorporated that kind of parallel storytelling technique, a lot of ancient history, a lot of history telling would incorporate similar techniques where you would have these, these dual parallel characters doing different things and the, the story would toggle back and forth between those characters. Now, why do I mention that this morning? Why am I starting my sermon this way? Well, it's because we're going to see a technique like that utilized in our passage today by John the Apostle. John toggles back and forth between two main characters in this road to resurrection. That leads all the way up to the end. He toggles between Jesus, who is certainly the main character. He's the person that all the stories are emphasizing and the deeds that he does are the most important deeds in the world. But in addition to that, he's not just telling the story of Jesus in this road direction. He's also telling the story of the disciples. He's also telling the story, his own story, autobiography biographically he's telling about himself and then he's also dealing with the apostle Peter so I've entitled this message today trial and denial because in this passage in verses 12 to 27 the apostle John oscillates back and forth between Jesus's trial and Peter's denial 
Those two things are going on simultaneously, and there's a reason that they're together. They're, they're juxtaposed for us and for our edification here. And the Holy Spirit brought this about as Holy Scripture to teach some important lessons to you and to me about trial and denial. So here we go. I'll give you these four lessons, one by one. Here's the first one. Four lessons derived from Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. The first is this. Jesus' unjust trial was part of God's plan of redemption. It's part of God's plan of redemption. When we left off last week, you know, Jesus was giving himself up in the garden to Judas and his 600 plus soldiers who had come out to arrest him. And Jesus essentially puts his six shooters down and he doesn't fight. I mean, he could call down 12 legions of angels and obliterate them if he wanted to, but he lays it down. He said, I'm willingly giving myself up to you for the, for the sake of the father's plan. I surrender. And what's interesting about that passage, we looked at this last week, is just before Jesus surrendered, this group of 600 plus soldiers got a little glimpse of just how powerful Jesus was when Jesus said, I am, and they all fell to the ground. Jesus says, I am, and they all fall down. It's like a, like a supernatural version of, you know, ring around the rosy. They all fall down at Jesus' words. And then afterwards, the soldiers get up, they dust themselves off, they try to make sense of what just happened, what just happened. And then Jesus gives himself over to them. He surrenders to God, the Father's will for his life, for his death. And, you know, that's not the end. We looked at this last week, you know, possibly buoyed by Jesus's example. Peter, Peter grabs a sword and starts attacking people. And he cuts off that guy, Malchus's ear, presumably aiming for his face and missing and Jesus stops Peter. He stops the violence. And he says, no, Peter, put your sword away. The kingdom of heaven won't, be, won't come about by violence. It's going to come about by grace, by my death, by my sacrifice. I have to drink the cup that the Father has for me, Peter. I have to die for your sins. If you go kill yourself right now, trying to take on these soldiers, you're going to die in your sins. Have in mind, Peter, the things of God. And Jesus' gesture at that moment, you know, as he stops Peter and gives this statement about drinking the cup of the Father, it must have been so overwhelming. His words must have been so authoritative at that moment because, you know, the, the soldiers decide not to kill Peter and everybody else. We were talking about that in small group this last week. You know, why didn't, why didn't the soldiers kill them all after Peter attacks them? I don't know. I don't know. I, I have one response to that question. Jesus. Jesus must have done something, must have said something. We know from the other gospels that he healed Malchus's ear, and maybe that was the, the diffuser in that conflict. And after that, after that, Jesus gives himself up. He surrenders to this band of soldiers. And, and you get the sense all along the way, and, and John wants you to get this sense. He wants you to know that Jesus is perfectly in control of the situation. Nobody takes Jesus. He's not a victim here. He lays it down, lays his power down, and says, here, take me. This is God's will for me. And he surrenders. So look at verse 12. Let's pick up from there. This is the start of our passage this morning. So this band of soldiers, verse 12, John tells us, 
Remember, this is about 600 to 1,000 soldiers. And their captain, that word captain in Greek is kiliarchos, which indicates a leader of 1,000 men or thereabouts. So, I mean, this was, this was a large group of people that came to arrest Jesus. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. You know, this, this is, like I said last week, this is a battalion of soldiers. This is a large group of people, but they're not binding Jesus by force. Jesus is willingly allowing himself to be bound. He gives himself up. Verse 13, first they led him to Annas after this arrest in the garden. So they're going back into Jerusalem, going back near the, the temple complex in Jerusalem. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest in that year. Verse 14, it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient, that it would be advantageous that one man should die for the people. Now really quickly with me, flip back a few pages before this to John chapter 11, because I want to show you something here. You can flip in your past, flip in your Bibles and look at this, or you can look at it on the screen. Because if you remember from that passage in John 11, Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And instead of seeing this as a telltale sign that Jesus was Messiah, which they should have, you know, he raised somebody from the dead. Many of the Jewish leaders saw Jesus as a threat. And instead of worshiping Jesus, they, they actually start this plot to kill him. And they do this not because they disbelieve his miracles. They, they saw it. He raised Lazarus from the dead. But they're so afraid of what Jesus will do. They're so afraid that Jesus will disrupt the status quo. They're like, oh, no, here's this guy, Jesus. He's going to start a revolt. And then we're going to get in trouble with the, with the Romans. And they're going to take away both our land and our nation. Maybe you see that in chapter 11, verse 48. They, they really, you know, Jesus, just wrap your minds around this. They, Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. They just saw it. What's their instinct? We need to kill him. We need, we need to take this guy out. Don't try to make sense of their logic. There is no logic to it. There are, they are deceived. And as part of their response, this is an interesting statement made around verse 49. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. That sounds like what we just read in John 18, right? He did not say this, John tells us. John is editorializing here. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad so that, so that from that day they made plans to put Jesus to death, John tells us. Now, don't be confused by that passage in John 11 and thinking that Caiaphas was a good man. He was not a good man. And... Neither was his father-in-law, by the way, Annas. But God prophesied a good prophecy concerning Christ through the good office of the high priest, even though it was occupied by an evil man. That's what John tells us here. And Caiaphas, he spoke better than he knew. He spoke better than he knew when he made that prophecy. I don't think Caiaphas believes in substitutionary atonement. All right? He's not that kind of theologian. He's not thinking, oh, yeah, Christ will die in place of sins, and not just the sins of Jews, but Gentiles too. He's not thinking that way at all. He's just trying to get rid of this troublemaker, 
Jesus before he starts a revolt. And they get in trouble with the Romans. And you know, let's be fair, at least to Caiaphas, the Romans were merciless in their enforcement of their rule over the Jews at this time. And if there was even a hint of insurrection among the Jews, they would squash that rebellion with, with a hammer. And they would put people to death in order to, to, to stop any kind of insurrection like that. There was, there was a fair amount of autonomy at this time with the Jews. They did have some freedom, but they, they achieved that by constantly placating to the Roman occupiers. They don't see Jesus as the Messiah. They don't see Jesus as their potential savior. Caiaphas doesn't see Jesus as the son of God that was sent by God. They see Jesus as a threat to their status quo. He is the fly in their ointment of appeasement to the Romans. But what John says here is that what Caiaphas prophesies does come to pass. It It just comes to pass in a way that's different than he intended. They do eventually arrest and kill Jesus. They put one man to death with the help of the Romans. And that death isn't just substitutionary atonement for Israelites. Look at verse 52 again. All the children of God who are scattered abroad as well will receive the benefit of Jesus's sacrifice. That's you and me, folks. That's people... 2,000 years later in the far-flung place of Decatur, Illinois. And 2,000 years later in thousands of miles from Jerusalem. Caiaphas prophesied that this guy, Jesus, is going to die for us. This, this even, that blows my mind that God allowed for that to happen. It just it blows my mind. So that, that's the context. Turn back with me to... John 18. So now back to what we see unfolding here. And now hopefully after seeing that context in chapter 11, you you can make sense of what John says in chapter 18, verse 14. It was Caiaphas, the son-in-law of this guy, Annas. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. It's not a throwaway statement. Paul's not just, or Paul, John's not just trying to, you know, give some fun details. He wants you to know that, yes, Jesus is being humiliated right now. Yes, Jesus is bound by soldiers. He's brought before authorities like a criminal. But this is exactly according to plan. This is what God wanted. This is exactly what the Father instructed Jesus to do. Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels to wipe out everybody. But he doesn't. So that salvation can be purchased for them and for even people like us 2,000 years later. Are y'all, are y'all feeling this? Can I get an amen? I, I could use some encouragement here. This is good. I know this is a sad passage. I know this is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking what's happening to Jesus here. But don't lose sight of God's good plan of redemption that Jesus is willingly enacting right now. This is how God's going to save the world. This is how God's going to save us. So, first lesson. First lesson we learn from this passage is that Jesus' unjust trial was part of God's plan of redemption. And now... In verse 14, John toggles to the narrative to talk about Peter. And here's what John wants to teach us with Peter. Go ahead and write this down as number two in your notes. Peter's denial 
shows how fickle and fearful we are as humans. Can I just summarize this whole passage in one quick statement? Jesus is awesome. We are not. Okay. Y'all got that? I mean, it's, it's, it's as clear as day. Thankfully, John's a lot more artful in the way he presents that to us. You know, at this stage in Peter's spiritual growth, I think his following of Christ is more bravado than substance. Macho Peter. Yeah, I'll take up a sword and I'll kill for you. We saw Peter last time. He, you know, he, he got publicly rebuked by Jesus in front of a lot of people. And so I can imagine Peter, you know, he still loves Jesus. He still wants to know what, what happened. But his, his tail is between his legs right now. He, he just got rebuked, and he's not sure what's going on. And he's not clear about Jesus' teaching and what's going to happen next, although he should have been clear because Jesus told him what was going to happen. And so I see Peter now in this episode showing up with, with a loss of confidence. And here's what happens. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus. And so did another disciple. By the way, that's the apostle John. He never, he doesn't refer to himself as John. He calls himself the the other disciple or the beloved disciple. So this is John. John and Peter follow Jesus. And since that disciple, John tells us, John was known to the high priest. He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. So they're pretty close here to Jesus. Verse 16 But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. There's a lot of little details here in the narrative that might seem insignificant. You know, John knew the high priest. The servant girl recognized John. You know, John went back to the door, opened it for Peter, brought him in to the courtyard. Uh, And and you might even think, like, what's this all about? Why all these details? Well, I think these details are intentional by John to slow the narrative, to slow the narration, and to add tension and drama to what, what's about to happen. And here's where the tension of the story really escalates. Look at verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter says, I am not. I am not. What are you doing, Peter? Why are you saying this? Why are you lying to a little servant girl? You are his disciple. You said that Jesus was the Christ. You were willing to kill for him just a few minutes before this. Now you're cowering before a little girl? You know, scholars sometimes read this and they say, ah, that's impossible. It's impossible for people to be so gung-ho at one moment, ready to kill for somebody, and the next moment they cower before a little girl. Couldn't have happened. Couldn't have happened. No, it can happen. You know how I know it can happen? Because I've seen it. The human heart is fickle. We are fearful creatures. One minute we're bold for Jesus, the next minute we cower in fear. True or untrue? I know. I know it's true. Because I feel that in myself. So I don't doubt that this happened at all. 
Because similar things happen to me. We are not as strong as we think we are. I remember reading about World War II, some of the atrocities that happened in the concentration camps there. And, you know, when the, when the U.S. soldiers and British soldiers started to uncover what had happened, they, they were incredulous. How could this happen? How could people do something so vile? And they were shocked by these German soldiers that had perpetrated this, this evil. But they were, they were shocked, too, by the villagers and the people that were around the concentration camps that knew it was going on but didn't do anything to stop it. And, and they were puzzled. Why didn't they do anything? Why didn't they stop this? Why did they allow this to happen? And the truth of the matter is, if you get the right combination of fear and intimidation, men are capable of anything and everything. If you don't believe that, then you are very young and naive. We all have the capacity for evil in our hearts. Even evil like this. And you know what? You know why I think this episode in Peter's life was so important? Peter had to learn that. Peter had to know the depths of his sin so then he could embrace the Savior that was dying for him. Look at verse 18. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire. By the way, servants and officers, those are the same terms that were used earlier in the garden. So these are the same guys that came out to the garden and arrested Jesus. These are the same guys that were there when Peter pulled out his dagger and stabbed Malchus. So he's right in the middle of the lion's den, so to speak. And it's it's kind of an odd thing. He just warms himself by the fire of the people that just arrested Jesus. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. It's dark outside. It's actually early in the morning since Jesus and his disciples have been praying and talking all night. It's a cold spring morning. And Peter and his adversaries are warming themselves by the fire, waiting to see what's going to happen with Jesus. Now, Here's the scene change. Scene changes, oscillates back to Jesus. What's going on with Jesus? While Peter is denying the truth, Jesus is about to suffer for speaking it. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. By the way, just so you know, this whole scenario, what's going on here is absolutely illegal according to Jewish law. They should not be doing this right now. First of all, Annas, the guy that they brought Jesus to first, he's, he's not even the high priest. He's the, the father-in-law to the high priest Caiaphas. So he's got no authority at all, but he's kind of a mob boss for a, for a corrupted system. In fact, there were five sons of Annas that ended up being high priest at some point along with his son-in-law Caiaphas. So this was like kind of a mob uprising that took place in the days of Jesus. So that, that shouldn't be. Secondly, according to Jewish law, it was forbidden for accused criminals to be prosecuted at night or in secret. So they're breaking the law right now by bringing Jesus in the cover of darkness at night and, and interrogating him. Thirdly, a person in this day was prosecuted through the testimony of others. They weren't, you know, you you didn't have to self-interrogate. You had the right to remain silent, even in the Jewish uh, milieu 2,000 years ago. So instead of bringing in testimonies, instead of bringing in witnesses to accuse Jesus, they do that later, they start interrogating Jesus. They start asking Jesus questions. So it's, 
It's a bit of a kangaroo court going on here. And notice what Annas was asking in verse 19. What does, he, what, do he ask, what does he ask Jesus? What information is he trying to get from him? Who are you working with? And what is your teaching? Who are your co-conspirators is what he wants to know. Who are the other people out there that are going to start a revolt, that are going to get us in trouble with the Romans? Let's round them all up. And we know that Jesus has already been tasked by God the Father to protect his disciples. So he's not saying anything about that. He's going to take this on himself. This is for him to do. He alone has to suffer the wrath of God on the cross. But as far as his teaching, Jesus is not afraid to address that issue. Look at verse 20. Jesus answered him. This is dealing with his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I'm not hiding anything. You should know what I've been teaching. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask instead those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, Jesus wasn't hiding him anything. There's no revolution here. He's just trying to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. And by the way, Jesus isn't going to self-incriminate. He, he basically tells them to follow through with the law as stated because the Old Testament says that a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Bring the witnesses, says Jesus. Bring the witnesses that testify to what I've said. Watch what happens next. Watch, watch what Jesus gets for speaking truth. Verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand right in the face, saying, is that not how you answer the high priest? Is that, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Annas knows he can't intimidate Jesus. He can't extract from him some false testimony or some confession. And he gives up and sends him to Caiaphas. Now here's the contrast in the passage. I want y'all to see this. Here's the picture that John is painting. Annas is interrogating Jesus. A little girl is interrogating Peter. Jesus was condemned for speaking truth. Peter was scared into telling lies. Jesus gets beaten by the authorities for speaking truth. Peter gets away with telling lies. Jesus tells the truth before one of the most powerful men in Jerusalem. And Peter lies and cringes before a little servant girl. Are you feeling it? You see what John's doing here? Go ahead and write this down as number three in your notes. Jesus' unjust trial didn't keep him from speaking the truth. Jesus' unjust trial didn't keep him from speaking the truth. 
Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing. Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. That's the contrast. John MacArthur says it this way. You can read this on the screen. He says, the interplay of the two dramas, Jesus and Peter, brings into sharp focus opposite truths that are foundational to all Christian doctrine, the glory of Christ and the sinfulness of man. Those truths are evident from the contrast between Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness, Christ's courage and Peter's cowardice, Christ's sacrificial love and Peter's self-preserving lies. Here's my take on that. This, this is, here's my translation. God is awesome, we are not. That's what's going on here. Peter is us, and we are Peter. And if you don't think you're capable of what Peter's doing right here, you don't know yourself. And you don't know the grace of God either. And why Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And let me just speak applicationally for a second as well. You know, I think this is important for us as Christians to understand. One of the most important principles of the New Testament, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and reading this and confirming this in the New Testament, even in the Old Testament as well, but especially in the New Testament. One of the most important principles in the New Testament is that you cannot derive truth based upon the response of your listeners. Truth is not a popularity contest. Truth often is unpopular. And sometimes people get slapped for speaking the truth. And as a corollary principle to that, you can't derive your faithfulness in circumstances based upon people's response. Jesus spoke the truth and got a backhand to the face. Peter spoke lies and got away with it. I don't think Christians understand that sometimes. Sometimes, You know, they derive, oh, it it must not be true because that person just didn't receive it very well. And and now they're angry. And so maybe I said it wrong. Maybe you did say it wrong, but that's not necessarily how you derive truth, the, the response of your listeners. And that's peppered throughout the New Testament. I think the greatest example of that is in the book of Acts. Peter preached the gospel and got 3,000 converts in the book of Acts. Stephen preached the gospel and got 3,000 rocks. Who did right before God? They both did. They both preached the truth. You can't derive truth based upon popularity or the response of the people that you're talking to. And that's what we learned from Jesus. Jesus got a beating for speaking the truth. Sometimes people respond to the truth with anger and with violence and with hatefulness. We see that in the New Testament. I'm just telling you, I'm trying to be practical. I'm trying to help you as a Christian. You've got to have a category for that as a Christian or you'll stop speaking the truth because it's, it's unpopular. People aren't receiving it. You might say, okay, Tony, that's what we learned from Jesus and his actions in this passage. What do we learn from Peter? What do we learn from Peter and what he did? Here's what we learn. Write this down as number four. Peter's denial reveals our desperate need for God's grace. John returns to the narrative involving Peter, steps away from Jesus, goes back to Peter. Peter's in the courtyard. 
Verse 5, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself by that fire. Ostensibly, John knew all about this because he was there. John saw this. He saw all this unfold, and he actually watched. As Remember Jesus said, you'll deny me three times, Peter. John watched this unfold right now, right before him. Now it's happening in living color. So they said to him, more than just the girl this time, you also are not one of his disciples. Are you? Surely you are one of his disciples, aren't you? I, you have a northern accent. You have a Galilean twang to the way you're talking. You're with that guy, Jesus. You're with him, aren't you? He denied it and said, I am not. I can feel even after the second time, I feel the mania start to, start to come in on Peter. And he, you know, they're on to him. They're suspicious of him. They know. Perhaps some of them start to recognize him by the light of the fire. Yeah, there is that guy. This, there's still some blood on his clothes from Malchus's ear. Verse 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Maybe it was the firelight that started to betray Peter. At this point, I want to say, come on, Peter, the gig is up, man. Just say it. Just admit it. Just hold fast to the Savior that you love, Jesus. You know, maybe they will arrest you. You know, maybe you will go to the same faith that Jesus goes to. So what? You were willing to die just a few moments ago. What are you so afraid of? Just tell him. Just tell him. Is that what Peter does? Does he fess up? Once again, Peter shrinks back in fear. Once again, we see this big, burly fisherman, all bravado and all courage, all spit and vinegar a few moments before this. Now he wimps out. And he denies his Lord. Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. It's actually worse than that. It's actually worse than you think. According to the Gospel of Matthew, Peter actually invokes a curse in that moment to assure his listeners that he didn't know Jesus. And, and that statement in Matthew makes, makes a, a pretty interesting study. I remember studying this when I preached through Matthew a few years back in the ESV. Here's the way it reads. You can read this on the screen. Matthew tells us, then he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. Now, that's how English translators translate that verse, as if, you know, Peter was invoking a curse on himself. But, you know, that's interpretive, just so you know. The Greek doesn't include the word himself in that verse. So it's entirely possible, and the commentator R.T. France put this forward as a theory, that Peter doesn't invoke a curse on himself. He actually invokes a curse on Jesus as part of his denial. Is that possible? Would, would Peter actually say, I curse that guy Jesus. I don't know him. I deny him. Whatever he said. 
however he denied it. What a horrible thing to do. What a lousy, rotten friend. What a no good person. What a lout. What a jerk. What a dirty, rotten sinner Peter is. I'll say it stronger than that. He deserves to go to hell for that. He deserves to go to hell for denying Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. And for sinning, he's a filthy, rotten sinner. And you know what, Harvest Decatur? You know what? So am I. And you know what? So are you. Peter needs grace. You know, people look back on this passage, John 18, and they say, what a tragedy. What a, what a horrible thing that happened. Jesus betrayed by his good friend, Peter. And yeah, it is, a, in a sense, it is a tragedy. But you know what? I'm not so sure that Peter saw it that way. You know, these gospels started to circulate even when Peter was alive. And so there were stories that were circulating about Peter that he denied Christ in this intense moment in his life. And you know what? I don't think Peter objected to that being told at all. I don't think, I'm sure he was embarrassed by that. I don't think he objected. I think, you know what I think? I think Peter, he saw this as a significant moment in his life because it was at this moment that he realized I needed Jesus to die for my sins. I need a savior. I don't know if Peter knew that before this. And, and let me just tell you, Harvest Decatur, for your benefit, if Peter, we can't hold a candle to Peter in terms of his goodness and his righteousness in the flesh, so to speak. If Peter needs a savior, if Peter's a dirty, rotten sinner who needs the grace of Jesus, you, can better, you better believe we need that too. We all need God's grace. You know, what's amazing about this passage, this is the night before Jesus dies, he's resurrected in a few days. In just a few weeks, I'm not joking about this, in just a few weeks, Peter is back out in front of people preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. How does that happen? How does a guy go from this to that? Some of you might say, it's the Holy Spirit, Pastor Tony. Yeah, I think, I think that's true. But you know what else? Peter was less self-assured after this moment. He was less self-righteous. He was less confident in and of himself, and he began to depend on Jesus in ways that he never did. And this was important for him. This was a significant moment in his life. So let's, let's talk application. How about you, Harvest Decatur? How about you? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you come to the end of self-reliance and realized I am a dirty, rotten sinner who deserves hell. And that's why Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And I am saved by the blood of Jesus. You know how awesome that testimony is? You know how pathetic a testimony it is to say that I'm, God loves me because I'm a good person. No, you aren't. And I'm not either. You know, one of the greatest gifts that I received as a, a young kid, one of the greatest gifts I received from my parents and from preachers is the realization that I was a dirty, rotten sinner 
someone in my childhood, many times in my childhood, people had the courage to tell me that. And, you know, I can make a pretty good case for myself. I, I was never a bad kid. I, I never smoked a cigarette. I never slept around. I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or run with girls who do. <laughs> I went to church. I read my Bible. I made Wally and the Beave look like hardened criminals. <laughs> Yet people kept telling me, you know, preachers, that I'm a sinner and that I needed Jesus. You know what? That was a gift from them because it was true. In the depths of my heart, there was pride, there was self-righteousness, there was sin. Do you know that? If you don't know the bad news about your sinful state before a righteous God, you can't embrace the good news of Jesus dying for your sins. Otherwise, it didn't make sense. If we could be saved by our own good works, why would Jesus have to be brutalized on a cross like that? Wouldn't God the Father just have said, don't worry about it. I'll just teach these people how to be better. We can't be saved with that way. Here's the good news. You might say, thanks a lot, Pastor Tony. So what I've learned today is that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. You want some good news in that? Jesus only saves dirty, rotten sinners, okay? He doesn't save sinless people. Hallelujah. I'll close with this and then we can enter into a time of communion. I want to close with this because there's a glimmer of hope for Peter, even in the midst of this sad passage. I want to show you something in the text. That you, it's, it's difficult to notice without some understanding of the original language. So let me point this out in chapter 18, verse 18. Look at your Bibles again with me at verse 18. There's this statement and it seems Kind of like a throwaway statement. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. And Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And even as I read that night, uh, read that right now, you might say, well, you know, that's pretty pedestrian. Like what do we really need to know that? You know, there's a fire, it's cold outside. Why did John put this in the story? Why is this even in the Bible? Do we really need to know this? Well, here's why I think John told us about this. Here's why I think this is in this story, because the word that's used here for charcoal in the Greek, charcoal fire, is the word anthrakia. And it's an incredibly rare word in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used twice, and both occurrences are in John. And I believe that those two occurrences of this word are connected. And here's why I say that. Do you know where the other occurrence is found? Anybody know? It's found in John 21, verse 9, at the end of this gospel. Do you know what happens in John 21? Well, Peter's out fishing in his boat, and he sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, on the shore. And when Peter recognizes that it's Jesus, he immediately takes out his ar- off, off his outer garment. He jumps off of the boat into the water, and he swims to Jesus so that he can be there first. He just jumps, you know, like, like Forrest Gump, who saw Lieutenant Dan on the side. He just jumps and runs after him. And then he gets out of the water. And what, you know what Peter sees when he steps out of the water and steps ashore? He sees anthrakia. He sees a charcoal fire. 
how'd that get there? And it's just a little reminder for Peter that Jesus knows what Peter did in the courtyard. Jesus is not unaware of Peter's denial of him. And yet, does that mean that Jesus rejects Peter? No, actually, there's this great threefold discourse. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. So Jesus restores him essentially three times. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. That's a beautiful moment with his restoration. And then Jesus says at the end of that section in John 21, he says, follow me. You are a follower of me, even though you denied it, Peter. And here, let me just summarize this. In other words, I, I hear Jesus saying, you messed up, Peter. You messed up big time. Anybody in this room ever mess up big time for the Lord? Anybody made a mistake? I have. Jesus says to Peter, my grace is sufficient for you, Peter. Come follow me. Come follow me. Peter's not saved by not messing up. You know what Peter's saved by? He's saved by grace. And so are you, Harvest Decatur. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. We're saved by grace. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. We are more like Peter than we like to admit. We are sinners. And yet we are saved by grace. Thank you, Jesus, for that. As we turn our attention now, to your body and to your blood. God, remind us anew remind us, Lord, of the price you paid for our sin. We ask in your strong name. Amen.